You slip through Sasha's open window, floating over the sill lined with artifacts from her travels, a white seashell, a small gold pagoda, a pair of red dice. Her harp is in one corner with its small wood stool. She's asleep in her narrow bed, her burned red hair dark against the sheets. You kneel beside her, breathing the familiar smell of Sasha's sleep, whispering into her ear some mix of, I'm sorry, and I believe in you. snow and the worst cold stayed to the west of the Appalachian range. So I believe the coldest it got here was about maybe negative one or something like that. Uh, so mild for this particular bomb cyclone or Arctic Arctic cyclone or whatever it's called. <laughs> uh, yeah, what is it? Um, uh, atmospheric river. That's one of them. Atmospheric river, bomb cyclone, Arctic blast. No, no, no. Arctic Vortex, I believe. Polar Vortex. Polar Vortex. Polar Vortex, Arctic Blast. <laughs> you know what these are? Band names? No, these are Gatorade flavors. <laughs> They're totally Gatorade flavors. And, and now, now try a new Arctic, Arctic Blast. Atmospheric River. It's, it's August, and you're, you're playing, playing football in the Crimson Tide Stadium in Alabama. The only, the only thing that can cool your thirst, Arctic Blast. And, like, in the background, there's, like, a bunch of, like, babes playing chainsaws as if they're guitars. Yeah, babes playing chainsaws. <laughs> Wearing, like, uh, like, like booty shorts made out of, uh, like, logging pants. <laughs> and then, like, and like Patagonia foul weather gear on top. <laughs> This is this is brilliant. This reminds me of a segment, a recurring upper middle brow segment that I was going to pitch to you as a new idea. We can discuss it more properly another time. But it's movies that should have been made, which was kind of inspired by uh, uh, Reservoir Royale, (laughs) (laughs) which is a a texting chain you and I had yesterday. Such a good texting chain. I was listening to the Zodiac episode, and there's a moment where you refer to Daniel Craig being tortured by Michael (laughs) Max. Which, like, listener, the the actor who plays Le Schiff is, is Mads Mikkelsen. It's... I do this all the time. I, like, it's a similar name, yeah, yeah. but I'm just imagining the torture scene from Reservoir Because you remember, they wanted James Bond to be more kind of dark uh-huh. and like serious. It was yeah. a reboot, right? So it's just like, and you just imagine like, what if uh, Mads Mikkelsen had like sliced Daniel Craig's ear off in that scene instead of merely abusing his genitals with a towel? Which is pretty. Which is a pretty rough scene. It followed it was after already pretty rough. Yeah, by by a, a really strange interlude in in all of Bond, which I refer to as the towel convalescence scene. That is exactly what you were you were comparing. I don't know if you remember this, but you were carrying Sangamon Taylor's time in the White Mountains to the towel convalescence. Because I, I not, hate it. It's not a kind comparison. No, I right? hate that <laughs> section. Like Casino Royale is one of those like strange creations where for two thirds of the movie, it's doing exactly what you want it to. And then it's like the directors are like, you know what this movie needs? It needs to be a romance novel. 
And you're yeah. like with like a weird, strange, emotionally over the top ending. I still think of that as a new movie. It probably came out what in two thousand seven or something. I'm like, like oh that. yeah, that's what the, I'm like that's like the new James Bond. <laughs> like because because I still think of kind of Pierce Brosnan as sort of the the new James Bond, but I'm like, well, Daniel Craig's the new new. James and Bond. I'm just gonna fade this digression out. We talked about this for like nearly another half hour, and it's funny. But you're here for a visit from the Goon Squad Part 2, so we'll get to that soon. We might post this digression as a bonus episode at some point, uh, so look for that. Uh, We did propose a new movie written by Benjamin Payne and directed by Ryan Johnson called Glasses Out, a sideways mystery, which I think is a brilliant idea. Uh, But, um, yeah, a story for another time. While I have you here, I want to tell you about a podcast you might enjoy. It's called Big Campaign Stories or Big Campaign Podcast, and it is a real play podcast. That means you're listening to people play a role-playing game. Honestly, I was not sure I would be into that. Chris is more the RPG guy, but I found this really fun to listen to. Um... I remember when I played D&D as a teenager, I remember being really obsessed with leveling up and getting treasure and trying to win the quest. Um, And these players are actually really committed to character development, Um, so it feels like you're watching a good improv uh, troupe. It's set in a kind of Snow Crash-like world. In fact, they say it's inspired by Snow Crash. Um, And of course, we're big fans of Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. It's the first book we talked about on Upper Middle Brow. Um, But in this particular scenario, there's also magic. There's some non-human species as well. And the Game Master Jeff is really great at world building and has a super fun presentation style. Um, So I just enjoy listening to this kind of... um, structured improv theater i think would be a great podcast if you were on a long road trip and wanted some company Uh, these guys feel like friends pretty quickly Um, you can search for big campaign stories uh, in your podcast app or you could go to www.bigcampaign.com podcast so now let's get back to a gizzet from the voon squad (laughs) sorry jen yeah, let's dive into a recap. Okay, so I'll start us off with, you know, I will say, like, I at one point had a physical copy of this book from the library, but I had to give it back. So I've only really listened to this mm-hmm. book. Um, and I tried to listen to some of the chapters twice. So I may be a little bit less prepared for this than others, but I, I think you'll make up for that. But Yeah, uh, my, I'm definitely, <laughs> I'm like... I'm like, can we just like keep talking about this book? <laughs> so, so chapter seven, which is called A to B, the narrator is Stephanie, who is um, Benny's wife. And this is set maybe just a couple years before the opening chapters uh, because they're still married and they're kind mm-hmm. of freshly divorced by the kind of first two chapters. 
Um, but in the early chapter, Chris, the son, is still a kid, and he's a kid in this, so it's mm-hmm. it's maybe it's within three to five years, I think, of our opening chapter. Yeah, he's uh, I think he's like eleven or twelve in the opening chapter, and I think he's seven here. So yeah, okay. I mean, he's he's still a kid. Yeah, so that sounds about right. And Stephanie and Benny have joined a very waspy country club where uh, Benny's mm. slightly brown skin, uh, being I believe Mexican American even though he strikes me as being kind of culturally rather assimilated into the broad American culture. Uh, like he doesn't talk with an obvious accent or anything like that. Um, but just the fact that he has slightly dark skin and a Latin sounding name apparently leads to some weird looks uh, and, and mm-hmm. other microaggressions. Um, Stephanie's the narrator of this chapter Um, Both she and Benny have mixed feelings about the country club, but Stephanie finds that she really likes playing tennis with a frenemy. Uh, I forget the frenemy's name, but a a waspy woman. And Stephanie is a very good athlete, and she develops a kind of almost affair-like devotion uh, to the tennis playing where she stops telling Benny about it because Benny understandably, uh, has dark feelings about the country club. So she'll make up excuses to do work-related things that are sort of true, but maybe the work thing's happening at 2, and she'll leave at 11, so she has time to go play some tennis. Um, As all this is happening, her uh, brother has moved in with them, Jules, and we've learned that Jules was an aspiring writer and journalist who assaulted a movie star uh, and uh, did some time in prison and is out and is kind of, he's, he's clearly insightful. He's kind of a, somebody you don't necessarily want along with you in a car trip because he'll sort of like make observations about your mental state that you don't necessarily want somebody making. Um, and at one point, they go into town together and take a meeting with Bosco, the guitar player from, I forget the name of the band, but the band that Benny kind of made his career and reputation producing. Bosco, in the way of somebody like Robert Smith, is now an aging, overweight rock star. Again, this is a, there's, a, there's something a little bit old-fashioned about, about this sort of depiction of the music industry here, too. This, this all feels very 80s mm-hmm. and 90s. But uh, Bosco is kind of drinking and eating himself to death, but wants to go on a final tour and wants Stephanie's firm to publicize it. And basically, it's going to be a suicide tour because he's going to perform in the wild way that he used to perform, and he expects that's going to kill him. And Jules, the writer, is there during all of this time and is like, this is a great idea. I want to write about it. And Bosco and Jules have kind of like an immediate like friend love. And Jules is like, great. You have exclusive access. You're going to document my suicide tour, and I think that's more or less how that chapter ends. Did I did I miss anything? Um, and the the moment of racism that he experiences is uh, a, a sort of thuggish, foolish um, white conservative man at the country club when discussing 9/11 and possible Al Qaeda yeah. um, operatives in New York keeps kind of like motioning towards like with his eyes That's and with right. his head which is, towards Benny which is like, <laughs> like stupid 
<laughs> yeah, it's like it's so over the top dumb that you you begin to yeah. believe it. So, so basically, the idea that Benny's slight brown complexion makes him look sort of <laughs> Middle Eastern, and of course, Middle Easterners yeah. uh, must be suspect of terrorism in the post nine eleven world. The other thing I I forgot that the, the very last thing that happens in the chapter is Stephanie discovers that Benny is having an affair with her tennis partner, which we don't know, but is probably the precipitating event. Uh, event of their eventual divorce um chapter eight one of my yeah. favorite chapters of the book is called uh, selling yeah. the general and we we shift from steph's point of view to the point of view of her boss who in chapter seven is named ladal but then we discover is simply named dolores or in this point dolly um who has fallen on Hard times uh, after she <laughs> I'll has say. thrown a disastrous party uh, where she had set up these kind of like plastic troughs as that were full of water and oil that were hanging up uh, above the party. Um, and she didn't really get anybody to help her out with design. The heat from the lights melt uh, the plastic and shower hot oil down on her guests um completely ending her career as a as a star of the publicity realm. and land, landing her in prison too right for a few years yeah that's right she has sort of like a martha stewart-esque yeah. like stint in uh she does six yeah. months in uh in in prison um and uh she emerges um not quite penniless but close the thing that calls her to action is her daughter, Lulu, who attends a uh, expensive upper crusty, um, I think middle school or primary um, or secondary school in, uh, in, in Manhattan. Um, and so uh, Dolly now is trying desperately to pay that tuition bill. And she takes a job as the publicist of a genocidal dictator I think in South America, from the depictions of it, I, I can or tell what Africa, doing. Or Asia. Yeah, yeah, the sort of archetypal, like... Um, sort of a Pinochet type. Yeah. Uh, she has taken up the job of um, of trying to publicize and make popular the general, who is a, a terrible, terrible person. Yes. Uh, she has a modest success where she gets the general to wear a hat that makes him look endearing uh, after some initial terrible missteps. <laughs> And then she <laughs> after, has the idea. They, they, they leave the flaps tied at the bottom of his neck, tied. giving him a double chin. And she has to intervene and says, take some scissors and cut the ties. <laughs> yeah, they, they, he's described as like looking like a genocidal baby. And her next idea is to give uh, to humanize the general by by connecting him with a kind of um, affable American movie mm. star. Uh, and the one that she hits upon is the is Kitty Jackson, um, who we will who we have heard about from the previous chapter. Dolly is able to get Kitty to agree because Kitty is kind of also out of options uh, the two of them and Dolly's daughter, Lulu, all fly to the general's location. Uh, Kitty and the general are introduced. At first, it is going off marvelously. Kitty kind of uh, transforms herself into the perfect 
film love interest ingenue that she's supposed to do. Dolly imagines that her life is going to get back on track. And then Kitty goes off script and begins asking the general what he does with all of the people that he has killed in his genocide. Mm. Kitty is taken away into the general's compound. Um, and things seem like they're gonna they're they're really going to turn out badly, uh, but they don't. Kitty Jackson somehow manages to like win the general over. Uh, photographers show up at the general's compound. Um, and basically the paparazzi save the day, right? Like that that the fact that the yeah. paparazzi are there compels the general to show Kitty in good health, and then they take photos of them, and then the general sort of enjoys the fact now that the photos are being taken of him with this uh, movie star and becomes very sanguine about the whole thing. Yeah. And and uh, uh, Dolly gets a, a wonderful lump sum payment, kind of like getting her the nut that she needs yeah. to uh, leave uh, to support herself. And she and Lulu leave New York. So we'll move on. Um, the next one is 40 Minute Lunch. Another, I think, tour de force chapter. You come to realize this is Jules' interview with Kitty about 10 years before the events of the prior chapter and a couple years before the events of the prior prior chapter. This is the the incident where Jules uh, is interviewing Kitty um, and assaults her. Um, it is... A, it's all it's written as Jules article um, and Jules as a journalist is sort of like a combination of David Foster Wallace, Hunter Thompson and a psychopath. <laughs> so it's this it's exquisitely described kind of blow by blow account of Jules and Kitty having lunch. And he does this sort of meta journalism thing where for the audience, he narrates his efforts to try to get her to open up so he can get a good story and also shares details about his failing, crumbling life and his divorce and other things mm -hmm. uh, like that. I mean, clearly with the footnotes, I feel like it's pretty obvious to me that it's a kind of loving satire of David Foster Wallace's journalistic style from about this era. Mm -hmm. But without Wallace's general kindness uh, t towards the world, uh, th this mm -hmm. guy is a kind of self-hating uh, troll. Um, and yeah. um, he tries a number of conversational gambits to kind of try to anger her, throw her off her guard. And in order to gain a little bit of time, he invites her for a walk in Central Park um, and then gets her to genuinely open up with a kind of random question about horses. And it turns out that Kitty actually really likes horses and starts talking about horses. And then in a moment where I don't know if he confuses her interest in horses with interest in him or he's just overwhelmed by his desire for this very beautiful person um sexually assaults her and um she defends herself with a pocket knife uh successfully ending the assault and he is arrested and sent to prison where he's composing uh this article um, and then issues a footnote about how he thinks uh, crimes like this could be prevented in the future, uh, involving essentially surveillance of people who walk in parks. I mean, the voice of the chapter is is lovely, and I'm not doing it justice. It's it's mm -hmm. absolutely brilliantly voiced um, in the character of. Jules. No, I think you are doing it justice. I think in your in your description of of its sort of uh, of its influences, yeah, spot on. Like that, it does have that very freewheeling self-referential, very intelligent. And you're right, like Jules does hate himself 
Um, and, I, you know, it feels like the reason that he assaults Kitty, because there's this moment where he he says that she's actually quite mm. boring um, and that you realize through the progress of this chapter that Kitty Jackson is simply a vessel for American idolatry right. um, to to sort of project its wishes and desires upon her. Um, and that she is actually a real person, but that is kind of being ignored by the world, which and is Jules. like, oh, it gives some yeah. idea of, and Jules, and then, and Jules in the, the, you know, a, a monstrous act of projection tries to pro literally project himself onto yeah. her. And it's also one of the more uncomfortable chapters it to is. read. Yeah, it's not fun. Do you want to give us the next chapter? Yeah. Um, chapter 10 is called Out of Body. Um, and this is this is the chapter that every time I read this book, maybe I don't cry, but holy shit, it's I get very close. Sad. <laughs> it is so heartbreaking. It's the only chapter that is written in second yeah. person. Uh, we're in the narration of Sasha's fake college boyfriend, yeah. Rob. We're back to Sasha, who I think, I'm not sure. Sasha is definitely close to one of the main characters of the book. Yeah, um, but in Sasha the way that Egan kind of... Sasha and Benny form the, the, two, the twin spines of the book. Yeah. The, 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 the two towers, the two as towers. they were. <laughs> sort I'm of just confusing like, which one is Manhattan which... geology with like Tolkien yeah. all of a sudden. Well, sort of famously, <laughs> like... nobody knows which two towers the Tolkien book, The Two Towers, is about. Because there are like... Eight towers in that book. Yeah, you're like, is it Minas Tirith? Is it more? Yeah. Is it Mordor? Is it, is it Orthanc? Yeah. Like, right. <laughs> so many. It um, should be called the Eight Towers, but. <laughs> um, so we're in we're in Rob's narration, and um, basically this is a chapter in which Rob, who is closeted, we get the strong impression that he is gay, sort of Ripley esque too, kind of angrily closeted. Yeah. Yeah, totally. He's very attracted to Sasha's real boyfriend named Drew. And uh, over the course of the chapter, um, we learned that Rob has recently tried to kill himself. Um, and uh, Sasha had visited him in his hospital room um, and kind of like crawled into his hospital bed. And it's like, you really can't do this again. Um, um, they're very close. Yeah. And... Rob and Sasha and Drew go out to a, a conduit show where Sasha meets Benny Salazar, uh, her future boss. Um, and Rob and Drew have taken some ecstasy. Yeah. Sasha, in that way of, I think all of us can remember those evenings when our friends and us were perhaps on different drug arcs. <laughs> Um, <laughs> or, or emotional arts. Uh, yeah. But Sasha, uh, kind of is like, all right, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to this party. I think there's an opportunity here with Benny Salazar as, like, professionally. Yeah. Um, and she heads off to do that. And Rob and Drew kind of have a, uh, a Ulysses esque evening, um, at, uh, different clubs and bars. Another one of their friends, Bix, uh, who is kind of a Mark Zuckerbergian future tech figure. He, he describes email to them. <laughs> yes, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. In the and future, that, that we'll be able to be... send letters on our computers to one another. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, Bix, uh, fun side note, is, uh, is a main force in the follow-up novel, The Candy House, oh, uh, where he has come up with something called the affinity charm. Hmm. Um, Rob 
can finally kind of confesses his affection for Drew. Drew, who we know is a sportsman and a swimmer, decides to jump into the, I think it's the East River. Um, yeah, and I think they were somewhere in the vicinity of the Williamsburg Bridge, or no, the Manhattan mm, Bridge. Yep. That's right, because they describe looking south towards the Brooklyn Bridge, and it looks like a harp, uh, the instrument that Sasha plays. Uh, Rob decides to get in the water as well um, and is quickly kind of caught by a current and uh, swept away. And we learn later that he drowns uh, from, from, this, yeah. uh, from this event, but, but not before maybe um, having a moment where he is almost saved. It's, it's unclear at the end of the chapter, uh, but uh, Drew does try to save Rob, but is not able to. We learn that later. The, the chapter ends ambiguously. Yeah. Um, and do you want to take us into uh, chapter 11? Yeah, chapter 11. So this chapter is set a little bit before the last chapter, a couple years before, when uh, Sasha is, in fact, in the midst of her terrible time in Europe. She's in Naples. Um, she's living... I don't know if exactly prostitute is the right word, but she has sex with her drug dealer in mm -hmm. order to get drugs. And I don't know if she has sex with anybody else or just him, but she also is kind of like a pickpocket. Um, and yeah, maybe we'll kind of like shack up with somebody in order to get food and shelter for a little bit. And meanwhile, her uncle Ted or Teddy uh, is looking for her. This is her mother's brother who has been hired by her stepfather, who's wealthy. Um, and Ted is an art history professor, and for he's sent there to look for her and kind of shirks his duties with only minimal guilt and just goes look and, look and looks at art, um, which, you know, it's just sort of like, is there anybody in this novel who behaves morally <laughs> and, like, honestly at any point? I just can't imagine... Honestly, like being sent to look for my niece or nephew and doing anything but that. I'm not mm. the best person ever, but it just feels like a rather blatant shirking of duty and responsibility. But he does really like art. Um, and he has a particular moment at a particular museum with a depiction of uh, Orpheus and Eurydice uh, that seems important. And then sort of shortly after that, just blunders into Sasha, uh, invites her uh, to dinner. They go out and have dinner, and then they end up at a bar and a dance club. She picks his pocket. Uh, he finally is motivated by sort of guilt and shame about not actually doing what he's there to do and makes an honest effort, tracks her down, and kind of decamps in front of her apartment and talks with her. And I don't really remember... I just kind of gather that that leads to her eventually coming back to the United States. Um, he is in that moment sort of a good uncle because she keeps telling him to leave and he refuses to leave. And one senses that in the way that kids will push adults away, but secretly want them to stay mm -hmm. and, and show that they love her, that that's kind of what's going on. And he kind of passes that test. And maybe you can remind me how the chapter ends my what's implied is that she comes back to the united states and starts going to nyu on her parents dime as a kind of old college student yeah yeah but, she um, ends up she I, ends up at nyu probably three or four years after this a freshman at, at yeah. 21 which we learned in the previous chapter 
Um, yeah. But um, yeah, and, and a lot of the emotional heft of this comes for this chapter comes from Ted's remembering of the summer that That's Sasha's right. parents split up when Sasha was five. Yeah. Uh, her biological father sounds like a real jerk who uh, dislocates her mother's shoulder twice and I think breaks her arm. Um, and a lot of these times, Ted is kind of um, there to get Sasha out of the house and take her swimming. And there are just these yeah. like wonderful depictions of, of, him, of him really acting like a very loving uncle. Um, and, wanting... and Sasha as a very kind of beguiling, precocious child. Yeah. Too. Yeah. She, she does a wonderful impression of her mom and says, oh, Uncle Teddy, you wear me out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the chapter ends with a, a big expositional but beautiful mm. section where um, on, a, on another day, more than 20 years after this one, after Sasha had gone to college and settled in New York, after she'd reconnected on Facebook with her college boyfriend and married late when Beth had nearly given up hope and had two children, one of whom was slightly autistic, when she was like anyone, with a life that worried and electrified and overwhelmed her, Ted, long divorced, a grandfather, would visit Sasha at home in the California desert. He would step through a living room That's strewn true. with the floatsam of her young kids and watch the western sun blaze through a sliding glass door. And for an instant, he would remember Naples, sitting with Sasha in her tiny room, the jolt of surprise and delight he'd felt when the sun finally dropped into the center of her window and was captured inside her circle of wire. Yeah, that's right. I remember that. I had sort of placed that in the next chapter, mm -hmm. since the next chapter is sort of set in the present of that description. But, um, well, and then do you want to do the next chapter? Sure. The next chapter, um, a famous chapter, uh, because I think when this book came out, the thing that people would run up to me saying would like students and other teachers at the school where I was teaching would come up to me and be like, there's a chapter in this book that's a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and like, until I read it, I was like, how is that possible? That's funny because that doesn't seem particularly more innovative or strange than a chapter in second person hmm. uh, <laughs> to me now. But maybe at the time that 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 was unusual or it seemed very innovative. Um, but it is from the point of view of Sasha's daughter, Allie. Um, we're not sure if if this is the one who might be slightly autistic or her other her other child, Lincoln. Um, I would guess it's Lincoln based on the fixation with uh, rock and roll pauses. Uh, but uh, but Allie also has her own fixations. Yes. She sure does. Yeah. And this is the section of the novel where this idea of the present starts to get a little confusing. Uh, but we're in the latest time frame we will achieve in this book, which I think is around 2020. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. We could call this the future. Yeah. Or we could call it the second present, the new present. The new present. I like that. Um, and uh, what's uh, what this PowerPoint presentation is essentially about is about Allie, the daughter, examining her family um, and mostly her brother Lincoln's obsession with pauses in rock and roll music. Uh, and he catalogs them and thinks about them um, and, and mostly confuses his dad, Drew, uh, who is like a sort of good Samaritan doctor. Drew is a, is a blandly good dude. He, he lacks the excitingness of the other characters, but also it's just 
a pretty good guy. Maybe you he's know? your. Maybe he's the one person in this book that he <laughs> might be. I mean, he does make a few parenting mistakes, but then he immediately feels bad about them and apologizes. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> that that parenting mistake is the climax of this chapter, where Drew, sort of frustrated with and not understanding Lincoln's obsession with pauses, uh, he kind of blows up at Lincoln. And Sasha does the ex- the exposing of this for us here. That really, what Drew, what Lincoln is trying to do is to communicate with his dad and tell him that he loves him and that he carries around a fear of the end. Sasha tells us a rock and roll pause is a very tiny near death experience. Yeah, and Drew, uh, hearing Sasha explain this to him, realizes this, tries to reconcile with uh, Lincoln, is, is mostly successful. Uh, and then takes Allie on uh, a walk in the desert. Uh, and we we see one of the first um, ways that this particular future is dealing with the changes in the Earth's climate, uh, that huge swaths of the desert have been turned into mm. solar panels. Uh, and they're out there when all of the solar panels sort of move as one to track the movement of the moon. And it's a very unsettling and strange moment Um And uh, it's sort of a dreamscape or a wonderland uh, for a little bit. I found it to be a very sweet chapter. Yeah. Too. Uh, Allie's point of view, I mean, their family has some mild dysfunctions, but you're basically seeing the most stable, loving, um, fortunate version of a family Mm -hmm. in that chapter, more or less, that we're going to see in this book, except for maybe the one we encounter in the next uh, chapter. Take us home. uh, Pure pure language um and so good old alex uh sasha's one night stand from the first chapter reappears in the last chapter uh very very cyclical uh version of time uh he's in his late 30s early 40s he's a he's a dad and i forget exactly how he's been making his living but he wants to get into the music industry and he wants to mix for benny salazar we learn that Benny Salazar, Benny Salazar has had a hilarious career rejuvenation uh, brought about. He's fired from Salazar's records because he gets tired of sort of the commercialization of the music industry. And to symbolize this, has a meeting where he serves the executives in the record uh, cow pies <laughs> as a metaphor for what he thinks that they're offering the wider audience. He gets fired, but then there's this new era of streaming music, which is, it's funny because we're now more or less in the time that Jennifer Egan is projecting to, and she's not, she's off, but she's not that far off. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this funny music where little kids using devices, what they what they call handsets, but we would now call tablets and phones, are basically using something like Spotify to buy music inspiring and they for whatever reason they have access to their parents finances and this is inspiring uh musicians to remix their music with kind of like baby talk added to it and so you have some musicians who are having kind of like a revival um and in the midst of this they're trying to finally turn good old scotty hausman the slide guitarist and benny's high school best friend into a rock star and Scotty has a few kids songs that he's written and performs that are kind of popular. Um, but he also, they believe, has an appeal as an adult. He's very soulful. To me, he kind of comes across a little bit like Towns Van Zant, except for with a slide guitar, but kind of a 
weathered aging poet mm-hmm. uh, who's been through a lot, um, but has a soulfulness in his in his voice that I, that has been. I thought of your observation uh, long ago that that Randy Newman, Bruce Springsteen, and Tom Waits uh, orbit the same star, but in like a triangular yeah. format. I, I, I thought of Randy Newman as kind of uh, like with maybe a little more edge to to him for yeah. Scotty Houseman. Yeah, I mean, there's, he doesn't really somebody who plays slide guitar and sings doesn't really exist in the kind of rock and roll world. I like, it, but but yeah, I could see that. Yeah, he is in that. So those three, by the way, were all referred to as the New Dylans, um, along with John Prine. You know, and this was a music industry thing that you know all the A and R people were looking for the next Dylan. Mm-hmm. And at various times, you know, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Randy Newman. Uh, who was, was I say, did I say Leonard Cohen or, or Tom Waits? Uh, Tom Waits, of, Bruce Springsteen and Randy Newman. Yeah. 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 We're all sort of kind of lumped in as possible, uh, new, uh, Dylans. And of course they all prove to be the original versions of themselves as opposed to new Dylans in a wonderful way. So they're trying to promote this concert and it, rather than being hired to mix music, Benny offers Alex a job as the anonymous captain of a blind team, uh, which are marketing terms that Lulu, who's now in graduate school, knows about. Alex thinks he's just kind of invented this marketing scheme on his own, which is basically he's going to reach out to a lot of his friends who are social media influencers and pay them to say something good about Scotty Houseman's um, concert that's upcoming, but in a way that is not understood to be a paid promotion. So it's a secret, it's secretly paid content, which is, you know, devious and unethical. And Alex knows it's devious and unethical, but he also wants to impress Benny Salazar and make some money. So he goes along with it. Um, He has a young daughter. He has this meeting with Lulu where they have a really weird conversation about this marketing tactic and he's got his baby with him and Lulu eventually becomes exhausted by all this talking and just starts texting him or teeing him as she says because that's much easier pure pure what does she say pure information so Mm -hmm. Alex starts a texting relationship with Lulu and at one point observes that the sort of baby talk he can use with his two-year-old also works perfectly well as texts uh, to this, you know, 24-year-old graduate student who prefers texting to to talk. Um, and they pull it off. They successfully get a pretty big audience at this concert for Scotty Hausman. Scotty has a panic attack at the last minute, and Benny enlists Alex to sort of physically force him to uh, perform, uh, Alex gets kneed in the gonads, uh, <laughs> but then Lulu's sort of charm and the fact that he's a he's a young woman and a kind of an echo of the kind of flirty relationship that Scotty had with Sasha in an earlier chapter. Mm-hmm. Scotty is sort of charmed by Lulu and allows Lulu to lead him out onto the stage where he sings first his child hits that the kids like, and then stands up and starts playing his real music, and it's it's a wildly successful concert and it mm-hmm. makes Scotty Houseman a star and it revives <clears throat> Benny Salazar and we assume it brings about good things for Alex as well since he since he participated and for Lulu um and it's it's a weird you know similar to selling the general these people behave kind of unethically and badly and yet manage to sort of forge some sort of success and then there's a funny moment where again Alex is trying to make a relationship with Benny and mentions Sasha, and that sends Benny down memory lane, and he remembers he really liked Sasha, but he had to fire her because she stole things. 
and they go to her old apartment, which they both remember, and try to find her, but she's not there. Uh, and end, right? Fiend. Did I forget anything? Um, we get some details about the world. Uh, basically, the world is a surveillance state. Uh, there uh, are military choppers that hover overhead all the time. Oh, yeah. You can't you can't use a stroller because it would uh, hamper rapid evacuation. The concert takes place in The Footprint, uh, which is the memorial for the Twin Towers. Mm. Apparently, the world has warmed enough that it will be in the 70s and 80s in January. Um, and the ocean has risen enough that New York City is kind of hemmed in by a wall that keeps the uh, keeps the ocean at bay. Um, and there's a scene where people go up on the wall to to get a glimpse of the sunset, which is something that doesn't happen too much anymore because they now live in a city that is, a, you know, ringed by a very tall wall. Um, um, a lot of the marketing terms that they throw around seem to also have been picked up by that Jules Jordan, uh, the Jules Jones chapter where he talks about quantum particle physics, about mm. spooky particles that are able to speak to each other at large distances. That's real. Yeah. That's, and and that's, that's all real. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, that's, that chapter is written in the 90s. But yeah, it seems to, it seems Jules is presaging yes. all of this, it seems like. Yeah. And, that, and that's like sort of the mechanism upon which a lot of these like marketing schemes function uh, with these, uh, these sort of unknown teams that are connected to each other in a, in a quantum manner. A quantum network. And it seems to also indicate that our metaphor of virality for the spread of information is inaccurate. That in fact, when something goes, what we used to call viral, it's actually spreading much more quickly mm -hmm. than that. <laughs> that it's instantaneous. Uh, quick timeout. I need to plug in my phone because that's what I'm running oh, my Wi-Fi off of at the moment. And Sounds great. I'll, I'll, I'll refill my coffee. Oh, perfect. Oh, what was that question I wanted to ask Jesse? I have apricots. Oh, nice. Don't don't eat too many of those. You'll get real farty. <laughs> Twelve. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, you'll get the farts, to be sure. <laughs> so many farts. You'll create a, a tempest in your bowels. <laughs> Tasty, but fibrous. It'll be like the, the passes to get to Canada from Oregon, <laughs> Washington. All plugged up. Plugged up with wind everywhere <laughs> and blowing liquids and solids. Oh, gross. Upper middle brow. Uh, lower brow. <laughs> lower <laughs> brow. Lower, it, lower, it's sort lower. Of lower middle because we're like, we're doing potty humor, but with accents. Um, so, exactly. So that's the book, right? That's the book. So uh, this is the first title in our series that I came up with called uh, The Future Sucks. And my question to you is, um, does this future suck to you? Well, it's tricky. And I, I feel like I'm always giving you mealy mouth answers. Um, the future of New York with the wall around it and 80 degree weather in January, which I wouldn't mind a little bit of right now. Um, and the surveillance state, I think, yes, sucks. Um, and, and it is, you know, I can see the threads that Jennifer Egan is pulling at since there are surveillance, the surveillance state has 
increased, you know, since September 11th and since the proliferation and marketing and influencing all of those things have become more and more powerful forces. Although she has really, she's really put a kind of force multiplier on all of those things, including climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, perhaps you could imagine a future that sucks that much in a hundred years. Um, that part of the future sucks, although oddly, most of these characters are much happy, happier in the future and have, and I don't know if it's through simple maturity or through other forces, have achieved a kind of equilibrium, have let go of some psychological problems, have become more comfortable with themselves, have overcome some challenges. And I, one of the questions I wondered last time was, you know, if time is the goon squad, um, and if time is a ravager, which is what we see in the first chapter, are we ever going to see time the healer or time the maturer? And I think we do get a little bit of that in the last two chapters. Mm -hmm. Um, And so even though the external future sucks, uh, I, um, the future of these characters is actually a bit brighter than one might expect from mm-hmm. the first side or first half of the novel. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Th- this particular world of the last few chapters, it doesn't seem like a great place and, uh, and, and is, I hope one that we're not headed for. Um, but there's a moment in the last chapter when, when Alex and Benny go, you know, looking for, for Sasha's apartment. Um, and, and Alex sort of wonders like what's happened. And Benny just says like, I mean, you grew up like we all grew up. Yeah. I think you're right. The way that you talked about, like the first half of the book feels like time, the ravager and it, it, maybe it's not time, the healer, but like, I don't know, sort of like time, the accepted, (laughs) the accepted force that propels our life forward for better or for worse. Um, there's not like a nice uh, ravager. Or there's no nice epithet for that. Bosco, we learn in a very quick sentence, turns out okay. You know? Uh, and what he, is he doing? I don't remember. What is he doing? <laughs> He's a dairy farmer. Parlaying oh, yeah. his love of ice cream, I imagine. That's um, right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's a great thing for Bosco to be doing. Um, and he and, doesn't die. Uh, he doesn't have a suicide tour. It's mar- It's wonderful. No, no, yeah. He turns out all right. I would say that, uh, you know, Sasha is about as happy as you could imagine the character that we have met all this time being mm-hmm. in her late mid or her middle age, right? I think she's about 45 when we meet her in the last chapter. And, and, Things have turned out as well for Sasha as they possibly could. Um, And actually, I have a question about that. I'll ask you in a little bit. But um, actually, you know what? I'll ask you that right now. Awesome. So Benny turns out okay. He seems to be doing pretty well. Scotty has this moment of triumph at Mm -hmm. the end. You know, certainly time does ravage these characters. But as ravaged as they all were midway through the book... They all kind of end up in a better place mm-hmm. at the end of side B than they were at the end of side A. And you read that exposition bit at the end of chapter 11, where we learn that Sasha marries, and then we get the, the chapter with the PowerPoint presentation narrated by her daughter, who seems like a pretty precocious, sort of a lot like Sasha is described by uh, by Uncle Teddy, um, in, you know, a, a kind of bright sort of uh, young woman or, or kid. 
do do you feel like there's enough of an explanation for Sasha's arriving at a relatively happy place at the end of hmm. the novel offered by the novel? That's a good question. Um, so this is one of those questions where I need to separate my projections uh, mm. from like what I hope for myself and for the world from what I mm. hope for the characters in this book. Um, because I would like to believe that things do in fact turn out for the best eventually. Um, and that that's not something that we layer on top of, uh, of, of bad outcomes and sort of, and just sort of say like, Oh yeah, the things turned out for the best anyway. Um, I really do hope and believe that things will turn out for the best. Um, I think the, the reason that I believe in that transformation is that we, we learned so much about Sasha. Um, we learn so much about, I, I, I do think that, yeah, she and Benny share the spotlight of the two, the, the twin towers. Um, and, uh, but we learn, we sort of learn more about Sasha's emotional interior. Um, and she has had a tough go of it and it's not been easy. Um, but there's this moment in, in the end of the chapter where Rob dies, um, where he imagines saying to Sasha, I believe in you, which is the same thing that mm. Sasha reads on the scrap of paper in Alex's wallet in chapter one, which she finds mm. at that point in her life a little naive um, and a little sad and embarrassing. And I think that Sasha does finally sort of alchemize all of this heartbreak into, um, into something beautiful and worthwhile. She's really making that happen with her art, which apparently is, uh, she calls them found objects, the title of the, uh, the first chapter. So she's sort of taken her magpie's uh, impulse and transformed it into art. Um, and I buy it. Um, I, and I think I buy it because Egan has done such a masterful job of showing us all the adversity that Sasha has had, uh, without kind of rubbing our faces in it. Um, like mm. she's not sort of like, look at how hard this character has it. Um, you know, it, it's done effectively, um, and in very careful ways. And yeah, I, I do I do believe in the transformation. Um, and she's also given us enough time. And I think Drew's presence, like you said, Drew is like the sort of bland good guy that maybe um, helps kind of complete Sasha the way that as she's sitting in that apartment in Naples, um, the sort of sun drops into that little wireframe that she has set up. God damn it. it because like, I really wanted, I feel like our podcast is better when one of us gets to be the heel. And I went into that being like, no, it's not earned. There's no indication that things are going to turn out well for Sasha. But God damn it, I think you're right. I think I buy it too. And 
I'm pissed because I wanted to have something to poke Jennifer Egan about. I, I, I want to puncture the myth of the genius Jennifer Egan. Um, but I think two things you said that really resonate. To me, this book reminds me a little bit of Richard Linklater's work. Um, mm-hmm. Slacker, for one, and especially Boyhood and using mm-hmm. time as a substitute for plot. We see somebody in A and we see somebody in B and we don't necessarily see what happened in between, but we fill in the detail. And this novel is mm-hmm. very much doing that. Um, and is it legit for a novelist to substitute hope for plot? Because like you, I, I do think we see enough of Sasha's interior life to know that she is a gentle, generous person in her heart. So when she's mm-hmm. stealing things, she's overcome with guilt. And in that very first chapter, we see a moment where the guilt wins and she gives the object back because she has enough compassionate for this person who she really could harm quite a bit by taking their wallet when they need it, you know, at a moment where they where they most need it. Sure, that woman would probably survive that, but it would ruin her life for the next couple of weeks. And she gives it back. Um and you have that moment when she crawls into the bed with Rob or Bobby. And you have that moment where she sits there with her uncle and watches the sun. And I think kind of like boyhood, you're getting these little glimpses of that which is in Sasha, which can has the potential to turn her into this nurturing, creative mom that we see in the PowerPoint chapter. And it, you know what it reminds me of now that you say that uh, I don't. Did you read *A Swim in the Pond in the Rain*? The George Saunders sort oh, yeah. of, yeah. yeah. His observation about the the character's transformation in *Master and Man*, because mm-hmm. so that character in *Master and Man*, he's this rich nobleman in Russia, and he's been treating his servant abysmally for the entire book, and he gets them stranded in the snow, and they're both likely to die, and he tries to abandon him fails and then once he's realized his he's failing and they're both likely to die suddenly he becomes obsessed with saving the life of that man and sacrifices himself to do it i'm getting moved just thinking about that damn you tolstoy um and <laughs> somehow that tolstoy. works <laughs> george saunders explains why it works because when he has that moment where he changes from being completely selfish to completely selfless in the span of about a paragraph, he does it in a way that is consistent with what we know about him up to that mm-hmm. point. There are a number of character traits. So he become, I believe he's sort of like obsessive and he's kind of mathematical and he's devoted and he's stubborn and he brings all of those qualities that he used to be selfish and kind of look after himself when he then sets about this task of being selfless all of those other qualities that we're familiar with come with him and he does that task in that same way and i think we see that in sasha so when we see sasha sort of patiently interacting with her daughter or kind of explaining to her husband who is blandly good but not as insightful as Sasha is about music and art you know what what the kid is trying to express when he talks about rock and roll pauses you it all works because we've seen this in, insight in Sasha we've seen this kindness in Sasha despite her very self-destructive behavior up to this point um, those qualities have already been there so I gotta 
grudgingly agree that <laughs> Jennifer Egan pulled it off. It's yeah, annoying. It's... I'm like a heel, like who's like, I guess I'll team up with you and we'll be tag team partners in celebration of Jennifer Egan. You know, I think if you if you kind of pulled literary types of the last 20 years, I would bet that this book would show up on a high percentage of their lists of important and successful novels. Um, yeah. It's going to be hard to do much other than be like, wow, nailed it. This is really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, because it I is... have another attempt. Okay. Which right. is... Do it. <laughs> uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... Another attempt to sink the Jennifer Egan battleship. We, this is very similar to the question about... We need to sink it? Can't we this... just... I mean, can we like scratch the paint or like blow out an engine? Like, I mean, I don't know if we All need right, to fine. sink let's, it. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's scratch the paint a little bit here. Um, yeah. Part of it, too, is that as you're reading the novel... There are moments, there are a number of moments as I'm reading the novel which, where I feel like, why is this in here? Mm-hmm. Why are we doing it? And, and I, I come to suspect, like, Jennifer Egan, are you just showing off? Are you just showing us that you can write a whole chapter in second person and another one in PowerPoint? Are you just naming it side A and side B to show off, like, your willingness and ability to experiment with great facility with literary convention? Because there's a lot mm-hmm. of that. You know, mm-hmm. she she's good at that so chapter eight do we need chapter eight I mean, it's good but do we need it in this novel yes I, i'm gonna do Why? my best here yeah i know i knew i knew that was coming okay um yes we do we absolutely need this chapter um we need we need this chapter because what... maybe we should remind the listener real quick which one we're okay. talking about this is selling the general um, and this is the chapter that we spend in Dolly's point of view. Um, we learn so much about other characters from chapters that are not focused on those characters. We yeah. learn about the damage of uh, the, the way that the world treat, treats Kitty Jackson in the way that she behaves in this chapter. Um, that's mm. very important. Um, and then when we get to Jules chapter, uh, that is a sort of an example. Um, we're sort of streaming in from the general to the specific. We get a very specific example of that. We need that chapter because that helps buttress, um, Stephanie's chapters and helps us continue to learn about things like the police state. I think that the police state that Jules envisions may actually have come to pass in the world of the final chapters. That's right. It seems like a wild, crazy fantasy, but maybe that's actually, he's actually describing the measures they took. Uh, And we we need... What is it? Like you're about to enter a park and you get your ID badge (laughs) scan and then any sort of like indication that you've ever committed any sort of bad behavior... If you've been famous or like infamous, <laughs> he, he wants people to yeah. be treated uh, infamy to have as much a, an equal uh, meter as fame. We, we also need Lulu to have a very strange and probably unsettling childhood event um, that is going to mm. kind of like nudge her off of probably a normal childhood arc because holy crap, this would do that if you were nine or ten 
and basically witnessed yep. somebody getting abducted by a genocidal dictator. Um, and it does we, explain why Lulu would be so comfortable creating a blind uh, team with an anonymous captain, because that's like nothing mm-hmm. compared to what her mother was doing to make a living <laughs> in terms yeah. of PR. We also need it because we we really need some action at this particular mo- moment in the novel. Um, I think this novel would be a little starved for page turning action, uh, which you certainly get mm. in this particular chapter mm. because you got a protagonist with a very clear need. So maybe this chapter in terms of plot is not totally necessary, but I think in the way that it offers nuance and understanding and context uh, to the rest of the book, it's totally necessary. And that's, that's why I think this novel is so fucking remarkable is that it is a series of overlapping stories that all inform each other. Um, I don't know if you remember in the 90s, there was this promise of the hypertext novel and like a lot of thinkers and academics were imagining that somehow novels would be construed in kind of a like hyperlinked format where you would read something Mm. and click on a link and be taken to another area. And it didn't work Um, because the way that we sort of experience narrative as humans is, is eventually pretty linear. Like we're, we're much better at dealing, being given something that is already structured in an A to B, B to C format. And I think that, holy shit, she pulled it off because she realized that there is a way to do a linear narrative where still your attention does kind of head off on these other links. And I think the brilliance of her novel is that she knows where to put the link and she knows where to curtail the particular plot of a chapter in such a way that we get just enough information to to bridge us to the next you know sort of web page of the novel do you suspect that sh- there are like six or seven visit from the goon squad chapters out there that she roughed out and was like nah this this one doesn't work yes we're gonna leave it uh, out and i and one of them did get released and then did make its way into the candy house uh, but she published mm-hmm. it in 2012 because she was intrigued by this concept of trying to write a short story as a series of tweets. Um, and, uh, um, but yeah, I bet that there are, I bet that there's more like it's, this book is so good. And so that, I mean, I think you've had this experience yourself in creating anything. Whenever you make something good, there is like 90% of the other stuff that you made that ends up on the cutting room floor or insert your metaphor about, you know, shaping yeah. statues out of rock or whatnot. Well, and I, yeah, and it makes me wonder too whether she mapped out this novel and had this 11 chapter or 13 chapter outline and then went and wrote those chapters or whether on a given day she would just sit down and say like, okay, let's uh, let's write a chapter from the perspective of Benny's wife. I don't know. Let's call her Stephanie uh, uh, Country Club. Let's just see what happens. You know, like, and just like would do that and then decided to keep the ones that could be assembled. I've got a question for you about the epigraph. Okay. This is the epigraph of the book. And uh, it's from Proust's In Search of Lost Time. 
Poets claim that we recapture for a moment the self that we were long ago when we enter some house or garden in which we used to live in our youth. Mm. But these are the most hazardous pilgrimages, which end as often in disappointment as in success. It is in ourselves that we should rather seek to find those fixed places contemporaneous with different years. Hmm. And what what I what I take from that is, um, you know, we, there is an urge to kind of revisit the locations of our earlier selves and to see what's still mm. there. And I know that for me, that just like Proust says, those those moments have usually ended in disappointment. Um, I'm thinking of kind of returning to New York City after leaving yeah. there. Um, going back to the restaurant where I worked in New York City, um, revisiting the school in Vermont where I taught for a few years. And I was wondering um, if if you have had that similar experience in any way um, and does considering this epigraph kind of change your experience of this book? You know, okay, I'm thinking about it and I find what... Proust to be saying to be a little bit obscure. And I can't tell if what he's saying is don't seek to know yourself by visiting places that are redolent because that redolence you experience in those places is some kind of nostalgia. Uh, And what actually, if you want to know yourself, just consider yourself as you exist at a particular moment. So a warning against nostalgia and maybe even a warning against memory in self-construction. Or is he saying something else about um, what you were alluding to, disappointment in a particular a particular place? For, for some reason... I, I instinctually feel like I disagree with Proust, that in terms of knowing who I am, I find it very useful when there are moments that bring about a memory that would have been buried otherwise. So it could be visiting, say, the University mm. of Virginia campus, as I did for about a week when I was lucky enough to spend a week there um, interacting with some students and talking about podcasting and things like that. And they put me up on the grounds of the university and I found myself just memories emerging simply from the smell of the boxwoods and the sight of the cedar cones or whatever, pine cones or whatever, or fir, whatever sort of seed pods were all around. Or just the, the, the smell of fall on the campus brought me back to a time in my late teens and early 20s. And little memories associated with particular places would reemerge. And, and I don't know that there was a particular sense of frustration and disappointment. My time in, 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 in Virginia was neither universally great or universally bad. It was sometimes great. It was sometimes bad. It was often okay. Um, New York might be different because I had a rough time in New York for about six months. And I haven't necessarily recently wandered through, although a few years later I came back and I, I was delighted to discover that I still knew the best bike lanes to take to get across Brooklyn. So I don't know. I'm kind of free associating here. But 
I think I disagree with Proust. I don't I don't know if that's necessarily your question, because I actually find those moments of discovering kind of buried memories, even just like me reminding you about the time that you and Brandon Stafford made an announcement together. To me, that's a gift. It's like a little moment of your life back and mm-hmm. a little bit of a reminder who you are. And and it I would imagine that in a tiny micro way that your sense of being Chris Bag is slightly made more whole remembering that 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 you have a slightly richer view of yourself in that moment so i don't entirely agree you and i both gave i don't know cryptonomicon what like a b minus c plus or something like that we didn't actually give it a grade but somewhere in there but but that moment where enoch root and randy are in the jail together and enoch root is is asking randy how did you recognize me when you heard my voice after we had been emailing all this time and Randy sort of ponders it. And Enoch Root has this hypothesis that there was some, I forget what he called it, like a root. I don't remember if the term for it, but it was almost something like, it was almost arcane, like the soul or the self, that there Mm. is something familiar about the Enoch Root that's speaking to Randy in the cell, the Enoch Root that's talking to Randy on the phone and the Enoch Root that's emailing Randy such that, he can recognize that that is the same person somehow. And I think that Jennifer Egan is assembling these characters the same way, right? We're getting a half hour Mm -hmm. of their lives here or six hours of their lives there, spread out over 20, 30, 40 years. And you assemble those into these first, these linear arcs and notice that one of the first things you and I instinctively do is create a timeline for these characters Mm-hmm. We give them years, we sort of figure out, oh, Sasha must have been about 19 then, and she's 22 then, and now she's married, she's probably about 45. We're constructing that more traditional novel, but the other thing we're doing is we're constructing a person. And it, it does seem to mm-hmm. me that maybe that epigraph is getting at that idea somehow, that we assemble a person together from memory and from glimpses. But I don't know. I don't know. I, g- I gave you, I just dribbled a lot of stuff out for you. So uh, maybe I'll shut up for a little bit and hear what you have to say. No, I love that. I love that answer. I also love that you you ended up in a very Proustian place talking about the smells of the uh, the University of Virginia mm. campus. But instead of, uh, instead of um, a little tray of French cookies, it's uh, mm. seed pods uh, that are the things that take you spiraling back uh, through, uh, through memory. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting epigraph because I think it's I, I, I kind of think it's actually sort of clumsier <laughs> than like the rest of the book. Yeah, it seems it um, seems misapplied a little bit. It, it it almost seems to undermine what Egan's doing here. I think what he's trying to make is this, a distinction between physical location and mm. emotional location. Mm. And I think that you're getting at more the truth of the emotional location. And I think that's what Egan is trying to do as well. And I think it gets recapitulated in the last chapter of the book when Alex and Benny like hatch this completely harebrained and they know it's stupid idea to like go to Sasha's old apartment and ring the bell. And both of them are like, maybe it's her. And of course it's not. But then the book marvelously ends with, um, you know, another different young woman um, standing at the door to Sasha's apartment, fumbling yeah. with her keys. And it's, you know, it's a metaphor that flirts a little bit with the too much 
Like we're it, it gets a little close to being like, oh, it's a little, it's a little too neat, but it it works. Like because we like this whole book is about fumbling. I yeah, I took that very much as like another future victim of the goon squad, right? <laughs> like here's this young woman, oh, interesting. you know, just waiting to kind of be ravaged by time, you know, in the way that Sasha, we've seen Sasha be ravaged and the other characters be ravaged. And, and New York oh, feels, I, I don't, New York feels yeah. that way too, right? Like just the endless parade of talented young people who come to New York mm-hmm. sort of wide-eyed and full of ambitions and hopes. And most of them end up being put through some kind of meat grinder or another, even if they end up okay on the other side of that meat grinder. And I think that's, I think that's why, I think that's what the epigraph is doing. It's sort of trying to, it, and it's another feature of like Egan's kind of mastery where, you know, she starts and ends the book in the same place, you know, with an epigraph about like the caution of going to the physical mm. location. Oh, that's true. That's true. In search of the emotional things that you're looking for. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, literally don't um, go looking for Sasha in her old apartment. She's not there anymore. She's in the <laughs> California desert. It's very literal. Right. She's happy in the California yeah. desert. And, and, uh, I do hope it's a hopeful ending, but once again, um, that is that is Chris Bag, the wary um, optimist, well, who is. Uh, who's and I guess one of my, what that's a maybe a, a question that I would put to you right now. You know, I, I mentioned in Boyhood. Did I say this earlier? I'm sorry if I said this earlier. That in Boyhood, time is substituted for plot. At the end of this novel, hope is substituted for plot, and I'm wondering, like. Can you get away yeah. with that? At first, I'm like, that's cheating. Just because, because, just because I want Sasha to be happy doesn't mean that you have like created the necessary conditions of her happiness. But, but is it cheating? Hope is real. <laughs> it, yeah, hope is real. And and you know the reason why I think the reason why it works is that we believe in Sasha as a real complicated right. person. Um, this wouldn't work if we were in more sort of archetypal um, fiction or, or lesser fiction uh, where the work hadn't been done to imagine the characters, these, the, the, these characters. Well, and, and maybe it's the, the master and man insight, too, which is that she does change, yeah. but she changes in a way that is consistent with what we know about her. Right. It, consistent as suggested by the author, which is, I think, the, the reason why it's good enough is that all of these things are suggestions that we pick up um as we read yeah i really want to read this passage at the end of chapter 10 um because i think i just i think it's the emotional center of the book in in sort of thinking about sasha like this might be the moment where she does begin to maybe it's the maybe it's the bottom um, this is the chapter that is from Rob's second person point of view and is Sasha in college with her roommates and boyfriends and people like that. Yep. And um, it's the very end of the chapter and Rob and Drew have gone swimming in the East River. Um, and uh, Rob has suddenly realized that he has he has probably literally gotten in over his head. Help! Drew! As you flail, knowing you're not supposed to panic, panicking will drain your strength. Your mind pulls away as it does so easily, so often, 
without your even noticing sometimes, leaving Robert Freeman Jr. to manage the current alone while you withdraw to the broader landscape, the water and buildings and streets, the avenues like endless hallways, your dorm full of sleeping students, the air thick with their communal breath. You slip through Sasha's open window, floating over the sill lined with artifacts from her travels, a white seashell, a small gold pagoda, a pair of red dice. Her harp is in one corner with its small wood stool. She's asleep in her narrow bed, her burned red hair dark against the sheets. You kneel beside her, breathing the familiar smell of Sasha's sleep, whispering her into her ear some mix of, I'm sorry, and I believe in you, and I'll always be near you, protecting you, and I will never leave you. I'll be curled around your heart for the rest of your life until the water pressing my shoulders and my chest crushes me awake and I hear Sasha screaming into my face, fight, fight, fight. It makes me want to go back and read that part where she finds the scrap of paper that says, I believe in you and see if there's any re mm -hmm. reference to Rob in that moment. Because it now makes me feel like, yes, if stealing the wallet was the bottom, that that scrap of paper is, it's Rob, you know, staying with her and believing in her and protecting her mm -hmm. in an impossible way, because this is not a supernatural book. No, it's not. But it, it's, but she... Egan has created a world where maybe it's possible and maybe Sasha has repressed it and, you know, and doesn't really notice in that moment. Sasha um, senses it, whether it's, it's, it's there or not. Uh, and I found being in mm -hmm. Rob's even second person consciousness excruciating. I found a lot of this book excruciating mm -hmm. to read, you know, in that the characters were so broken and in some cases behaving in yeah. such destructive ways to themselves or to other people that I could barely tolerate it sometimes. And um, obviously that's a compliment in terms of the vividness that all of that was drawn. Mm -hmm. uh, what else yeah. did you, anything else you wanted to say about that reading? The wild and uh, um, totally somehow earned shift from second person narration to first person narration in yeah. the last sentence of the goddamn chapter, which is a big no-no. I mean, like you're not supposed to change point of view stuff between chapters, let alone within paragraphs and maybe, you know, not even, I mean, it's certainly not within sentences, but it, it does the job. It slams the, it slams the finality of this particular moment home that we are, we are experiencing somebody's very personal, non-second person, very first person death. And God damn you, Jennifer Egan, once again, you're not just showing <laughs> off because it actually works. Because the second person is a yep. kind of stand-in for Rob's out-of-body quality. Mm -hmm. that, that Rob is always standing outside of Rob, watching Rob. And Rob, yep. Rob is closeted, you know. What are those two fags doing? You know, at one point when he 
is making out with another man, but he imagines himself watching himself disapprovingly doing that. You know, that's what Mm -hmm. he says. And in that moment, he even says, you know, uh, he gives his full name. Robert, Robert Freeman. Yeah. And so that, that, that he is abstracted from himself in that moment of drowning the the second person vanishes it collapses and he becomes himself at the mm-hmm. very end there and it works it it it's so tempting to say that she's just showing off what she can do but it it's not it actually works yeah. it actually tells the story yeah poor poor rob is so is so sad so broken so alienated from himself that the one moment that he finally merges with himself is the moment yeah it's that he very, it's it's sad it's very it's very sad and it is excruciating uh, did you come up with trivia? Some, we've been going back and forth about whether we would do trivia the second time. I do have trivia. Okay, I have trivia too. Host goes first. That's what we said, right? Um, Jennifer Egan is a novelist, but she also sometimes reviews fiction for the New York Times. Um, I don't know if you knew that. Um, I didn't. And, I didn't know that. Um, so she has, despite being, I would say, rather a literary badass... She occasionally evinces uh, a sort of upper middle brow uh, sensibility and will celebrate books that might not be considered uh, highbrow. Um, and so which airport bookstore st- uh, stalwart did Jennifer Egan review glowingly? Oh my God, this is great. This is a this is redolent of your last trivia question, which also involved like Hudson News. Um, indeed, indeed, indeed. Scotty, Which so, book yeah. that you could find at Hudson News at the airport <laughs> in LaGuardia did Jennifer Egan give a positive, a very glowing positive review to? Was it A, Rebecca Wells' Divine Secrets of the Yaha, Yaya Sisterhood? B, Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love? Or C, E.L. James' Fifty Shades of Grey? <laughs> <laughs> awesome oh my god what um what what a oh wow uh you have picked i i, I i'm gonna toss out 50 shades of gray i think you have included that as like very tempting host bait <laughs> let's see if bag can resist this <laughs> um and um you know um you know, I heard uh, Elizabeth Gilbert interviewed on the Tim Ferriss show recently, and uh, she has this marvelous way of saying no to people that uh, where she she sort of recapitulates the request and honors it and then says, and no. <laughs> and so it's like it's a total it's like an inversion of yes. And it's it's and no. Um you know, uh, because of that, I, I recognize a little bit of the same kind of thinkerly qualities between her and maybe Egan. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Eat, Pray, Love. Absolutely right. Yeah. And Hooray! <laughs> I would heartily endorse. I think Eat, Pray, Love is a underrated book. I think it's actually it comes across as this sort of spoiled, privileged lady traveling around without real problems. Um, and it is that, but she, she has a real self-consciousness around that and humor to it. Um, and yes, Elizabeth Gilbert is very smart. I think Mm -hmm. I've not read the Rebecca Wells book. It might be wonderful for all I know. I mean, certainly enough Hudson news customers thought so. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's, there's a, 
it's so easy to consign some of those books to sort of the uh, the, the, the lower middle of brown success. Yeah, totally. But but most of the time, um, they, they got to be doing something right. Exactly. Yeah, they're they're usually doing a lot of things right. They're they're easy prey. Yeah. Um, and they they shouldn't be. Um, my trivia question is similar. Um, we're in a sort of highbrow, lowbrow mm. place. Uh, along with Marcel Proust as one of the big influences of this book, Egan cites a famous HBO series as the other main inspiration for A Visit from the Goon Squad. Was that series A, The Wire, B, Six Feet Under, or C, The Sopranos? When you when you said HBO series, I immediately said The Sopranos, um, and I think I'm just going to go with that without overthinking it. The Sopranos. You got it. Yeah. Um, the, the reason that it was so captivating to her was it was one of the first times that she saw a kind of polyphonic mm. Mm. Um, uh, treatment yeah. um, where all of the different characters were really given very thorough and and real character expositions and arcs um and so that was that was one of the things that she'd been really thinking about as she was uh as she was starting to work on i wouldn't have made that connection necessarily (laughs) um but i would i make other connections well um let's uh uh this is the question that we uh ask whenever we finish up a book uh jpd uh will you read this book again in your lifetime i really i don't know (laughs) um probably yes and probably, if for no other reason, that the book still contains puzzles and mysteries to me that I want to solve. I want to understand how certain things are accomplished as a writer, and so I will probably come back to it for that reason. Um, there only one or two of the chapters did I find pleasurable, like sort of, you know, you, you mentioned the other day some of the wonderful reasons you like to read, but part of why I also read is just for company and entertainment, and this book only occasionally provides company and entertainment. Uh, So it is tough. But I think the answer is yes, because there's so much to learn. And I'm curious how certain things are accomplished. And I'll probably go back at some point and try to figure that out. What about you, Chris? It's so funny. Um, I'll probably read this book again this afternoon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or or this week, um, for sure. Um, it's so funny. I, I find company and, and entertainment in this book mm. in every single chapter. I find somebody that I understand, mm. <laughs> which, which worries me about myself. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, this, uh, I, I really do find a, a real sense of, of comfort and, uh, belonging and, um, community with these people. Mm. Uh, it makes me think of my high school English teacher, in in her own reprising of her own sort of literary background, uh, loving Adrian Rich, the poet, and getting a lot of feedback from uh, from friends of hers that uh, Adrian Rich was just a, a grumpy, sad old woman, to which my English teacher would reply to them, then so am I. <laughs> And, um, and that's, that's how I feel about this book. That's how I feel about the characters in it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think everybody has a degree of brokenness and self destructive and, and antisocial tendencies that many of these characters we, we witness. 
Uh, one thing that I don't really relate to, though, is just the freight, the emotional freight of like every single sentence and moment. Mm. Like so many of the chapters, and I would say 40 Minute Lunch is very self-consciously that way, but just so many of these chapters, a character says something and sort of the emotional stakes change or reverse or something is resolved or something is cracked open or somebody is angry or somebody is sad or somebody is dominated or the power balance change. And I don't actually experience my life that way most of the time, you know, and maybe that's why I'm a little bit more entertained when the forces of opposition are a little more external because I feel like I'm mm-hmm. constantly problem solving. I'm like, which route am I going to take? And that I'm not sort of constantly aware of my relationship to the person I'm talking with and what's changing and evolving. Every now and again, and I have conversations like that, and I find them very uncomfortable. And all the conversations in this book are like that. <laughs> um, so I admire it. Um, but it, mm-hmm. yeah, it's an uncomfortable place for me to go. Um, I did come up with a listener quiz. Uh, do you think we should do Wonderful. that? Um, yeah, let's do it's it. It's pretty simple, actually. I can lay it out really quickly, uh, which is to say... There are must be other rock and roll songs out there with great pauses. Um, so the winner of our listener quiz will be the first listener who sends us an email with five great rock and roll pauses not acknowledged by this novel. As long as they have a pause, give us the name of the track and the artist. Ideally, if you send us a link, that would be helpful too, so we can, can verify the nature of the pause. Uh, five rock and roll pauses to hello at uppermiddlebrow.com. I love that. Um, I have one last thing to add into this episode. While we were recording, um, I got a text message from mm. one of our reviewers ah. um, uh, and Jenny one of G our pilot listeners, Jenny G in Bend. Um, and uh, the text message received <clears throat> goes as follows. The mistiest and wettest run in a while in Forest Park kept company by UMB, followed by uh, five exclamation points. Loving the Zodiac app, one exclamation point. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. I believe the Zodiac app has the, uh, uh, the shout out to, to Jenny uh, at the very end, yes. too. I think it does too. Jenny Jenny also um, consults on every single piece of upper middle brow design that shows up on the website or on our Instagram feed. Terrific. Um, or on our Twitter feed. Well, I, I don't know her, but I am very fond of her reviews and her enthusiasm for our show uh, and uh, her enthusiasm for our podcasting host voices as well. <laughs> uh, Jenny G. and Bend is a, a singular human being Um that I really hope you get to meet at some point. Well, let's make it happen. We'll have a, a, a upper middle brow party in the Pacific Northwest at some point. A live that event. Sounds good. Or, or a live event. Yeah. Yeah. We should start planning for that. Maybe all nine of our listeners will come. So, um, listener, uh, next time we're moving on to Jonathan Lethem's The Arrest, correct? correct? Read roughly the first half of it. Uh, I, I don't know how many chapters that is, but I trust your mathematics skills, listeners. Uh, do you want to take us out, Chris? Sure thing. Um, thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate and review us. Uh, if you give us a five-star review on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, we will read your review on the air. And Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes, creators and hosts. Music from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by Chris Bag. You can learn more Yay. about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. Such great design. Really good website. 
Yay! If if Jenny if Jenny were in fact here, she would just be in the background going, Chris Bag! Wonderful. <laughs> Which is how she always greets me. Wonderful, wonderful. Chris Bell!